Where do we go from here? In the face of enormous costs of survival and tenuous connections to traditional resource harvesting and utilization. The bowhead whale, now nearly inaccessible to hunters due to the loss of pack ice. You have joined us on Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, a filmmaker and journalist. With me today is Patrick Anderson, a healthcare and tribal administrator with the Indian Health Service, the Macaw Tribe, and in his latest position, CEO of Alaska Rural Cap. Where does the environment leave off and our semi-porous epidermis begin? Transporting the outside in from noxious chemicals to bacteria and viral invaders, we are connected in ways we're not always aware of, from the environment to our biochemical reactions to stress, often across generations. How do we go from here into a future of consequential change and perhaps innovation? There is a huge economic impact and benefit to society uh, in addressing these disasters, but the budget folks say we can't accrue debt, we can't spend money if we don't have money. So I think it's that's the major problem that we end up with. And then uh, certain politicians that become executives are uh, administering so many silos and the communication is so poor uh, that they haven't come together to give a response. The same thing is true in every organization I have managed over the past 20 years. The number of compliance issues that we have to face for a small program, the one I administer now is about a $40 million uh, company, uh, is incredible. We have uh, federal guidance on, uh, on how we spend that funding. Uh, there are documents that tell us what we can do and what we can't do. The federal acquisition regulations. There's a lot of uh, what we can do and what we can't do. When you look at the list of add-ons to any grant or contract, they are pages and pages and pages long. And so what happens uh, with the federal government here is that they'll treat symptoms for a while because siloed organizations do that real well. Uh, so if we have something that is a symptom, the FEMA structure will go into place. Uh, and then there might be a response, sometimes quickly, sometimes not so quickly. But when we have all of these siloed programs with different areas of responsibility, one dealing with fuel, one dealing with healthcare, one dealing with transportation, one dealing with climate change, they all have to get together. And so what Congress uh, has done is required FEMA, for example, to put together a risk mitigation plan in order to coordinate all of this. Now imagine you're sitting in a village of less than 400 people, uh, very few college degrees, and those are typically working in the school uh, or in the healthcare uh, facilities. There's very little coordination. And then all of a sudden you're required to be the lead agency, uh, either as a city or a tribal government to put this all together. And so um, it takes sometimes years, if not decades, to put this stuff together and then to get someone to listen. Uh, is complex. The federal government uh, would have an incredible impact on the state of Alaska economy if it fully funded relocation of Alaska native villages. 
Right now, I think there are between 25 and 30 that are very close to ha having to relocate. If we're looking at uh, villages that are relocating, Nutuk is one that is currently in the process of relocating. Um, Hooper Bay, a community that my organization works in, is now beginning to uh, realize some of the um, issues related to erosion of uh, riverine banks uh, as a result of, um, of uh, permafrost. Uh, Bethel itself has put in extensive um, uh, um, rock barriers to try to stop the river from eating into it uh, as a community. Uh, even uh, Cordova, where my dad was born, uh, has some issues that will accrue because of the retreat of glacial ice uh, and the water issues. Uh, interestingly enough, when, when glaciers retreat, the, the land around it actually bounces up, so you don't have a subsidence problem. You have a, a come up in, in, uh, in height uh, uh, problem. This is Robin Carnine of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for joining Robert Lindahl and myself for a campfire conversation on nature's touch. Worried about climate change and other environmental issues? So are we. Thanks for tuning in. We all can make a difference. Quinnahawk uh, is another area, a lot of uh, substandard housing. And so to try to figure out when a village will have funding to be able to move uh, so that you don't build a lot of new housing in a community that has uh, dilapidated housing and is in need of new housing is a huge issue. So uh, a lot of communities, um, and I don't know all of the 25 to 30, I've not been to a great number of them, but you'll find them on the Kuskokwim and Yukon rivers as the permafrost begins um, melting, then the river erodes a lot of uh, uh, places away. Um, Buckland, which is uh, not too far away from Kivalina, spent uh, a good couple of weeks underwater, uh, predominantly. So we're going to have to be looking at uh, other mitigation type impacts because to move every village uh, in Alaska is a huge expense, uh, probably half a billion dollars. Yeah, I was hearing a hundred million plus per village, depending on the size of the village. Is that anywhere remotely accurate? Um, probably. A lot of villages are fairly small. Hooper Bay at twelve to 1300 would be very expensive. Nutuk uh, is relatively expensive, and they've basically only moved about half of the village from the old village to the new site. Uh, and it's not just moving the, the people, Robert. You have to move the runways. You have to move the uh, landing sites for barges. You have to develop the infrastructure. The school is the biggest expense. Uh, building a new school in rural Alaska can be a 50 to $100 million expense by itself, uh, depending on the number of kids that are uh, in there. And then, of course, to have any sanitation, to do the infrastructure for uh, trash uh, disposal, for sewage disposal, uh, that all has to be coordinated. Uh, and then again, if you like Nutuk, you have people in two different locations uh, there are issues that healthcare have uh, have uh, revealed uh, when the uh, new um, airport is at the new village site and the old airport is no longer functioning at the old village site. I think there's a 
a significant five, six mile commute just to get to a medevac plane. And my understanding is, is that someone actually didn't make it as a consequence. So this gets down into a little bit of minutia and detail, but all of these major issues of coordination, of communication, of funding sources uh, have to have some coordination that's not occurring in, in many of these cases. Uh, and so uh, the solution is probably to do what the government frequently does, is, and that is to have a uh, interagency organizations that are set up as a separate structure to help these very small communities coordinate. I mean, I'm an attorney. I'm trained to look at technical documents. I'm trained to look at legal documents. And I get confused when I get into this huge morass of siloed programs, siloed funding sources, compliance requirements, submitting multiple applications. Uh, at the same time, doing all of the engineering work, all of the uh, the land work that has to be done in order to move a community I and mean, just simply the, the land issues alone you have to find a suitable piece of land you have to go in and uh, do the surveys to find out if it's uh, suitable uh, remember if there's permafrost in in your current village there's probably permafrost all over the area that you're at so then you need to find a place to relocate that is not as bad as the one that you're moving from and then on top of that, the new types of foundations that you have to put together have to insulate. Uh, and who knows what the permafrost will look like in 40 or 50 years. Those buildings that were intended to last that long could well have subsided by a significant amount. Well, you mentioned the siloing and the administrative difficulties. And what was coming to my mind was every silo has a boss. Like there's somebody above all the silos right? Yes. So I want to take this back to race. So Puerto Rico, brown people, New Orleans, brown people, Alaska, brown people. What role does this play in the decision making at the top level? This is Robin Carnina of Namapa First Peoples Radio. You're listening to Nature's Touch with host Robert Lindahl. Thanks for joining us by the campfire. Don't go away. Uh, I think it plays a huge role. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to explain that. Uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives receive health care benefits through relationships with the federal government. Um, but the huge number of health issues that have accrued because of race and understand that race is a source of historical trauma. Uh, and so when you are beaten because of your brown skin, when you are abused because of your brown skin, when I, I can give you an example from my life, uh, quite obviously you, you can see my brown skin. Um, but when I was a boy, about 10 years old, uh, my mother uh, lost us to the state of Washington. We, we were taken away from her through their uh, children's services. Um, when you look at children's services in most states, uh, and here in Alaska, 60-70% of the children taken away from parents uh, are minority children. That is a huge event for uh, the perpetration of toxic stress. 
Uh, in Alaska, 30% of our prison population, it's a little bit less than that, is Alaska Native males. Uh, and uh, we are only about 19% of the population, but in the demographics of that 19%, a huge number of them, 40, 50% are less than 18 years of age. We have a very young population. So racism is very clearly uh, a huge problem. Uh, and it, when, when it comes to, be, to spending in communities of color, we find that the spend is not significant uh, and hindered by a lot of different barriers that are put up in front of, um, of the community. So you hit on a point that is very contentious. Uh, I currently work in the field of poverty, Robert, in the state of Washington uh, in their recently concluded task force on addressing poverty found that there were two issues that needed to be addressed in order to help alleviate poverty. Uh, Alaska Natives are a huge percent of the poverty uh, population in Alaska. Uh, but the two things that the state of Washington found was to address this historical trauma and to address racial inequality. Uh, so you've touched on a point that is uh, been a long time uh, in being addressed, but at least it's in some states like Washington State, it is now stepping forward uh, as the root cause of one of the reasons for poverty existing. And of course, poverty makes it very difficult for anyone in a village that has to be relocated to get a new home. If you're only making uh, 30000 on average, which is the uh, average wage or average household income in uh, Kivalina, uh, that's not going to support a house that could cost six to seven, eight hundred thousand in another community. So there's really no chance that someone is going to be able to build a house in a new location and finance it through conventional sources, especially with all of the natural disaster potential that uh, is hitting these communities. Is that why there's no funding until the disaster happens and life and death are on the line on a daily basis and it's in the newspapers? Pretty much so. Uh, you know, first, first off, you have to get the attention of politicians who are immersed in all of their important issues of the day, like uh, abortion and um, defense and um, their own individual drama. Uh, but uh, there are politicians, and you and I had this conversation, there are a lot of them who are early adopters of great ideas. And uh, we're, we're fortunate that there are politicians who are trying to think ahead and at least have the backbones of programs that might be um, available or switched uh, or funded. So one of the programs that we have available in Alaska through um, the work of our, our late Senator Ted Stevens is the Denali Commission. Uh, the Denali Commission was a source of uh, funding. It was one of these interagency funded uh, entities that was addressing issues like uh, sanitation and sewage and water in rural Alaska. So there's a lot of hope out there. The, the structures are in place. What it really takes is that conversation, elimination of silos. You mentioned each has a boss. Of course, each boss has their own ideas. Uh, and then they have to compete with the bigger bosses and the bigger bosses after that who all have their own agendas to play out. Um, communication is critical and important at a time like this. And it's only now really starting uh, and it's being demanded by the American Indian Alaska Native community that climate issues be addressed because 
uh, as we've just demonstrated, uh, we are severely affected and impacted by what's going on in climate change in this country and in this world today. Well, as we discussed, um, what was it, Roger's curve of innovation dissemination? Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's let's just take it from the standpoint of we're all on our own. You're on your own. Kevin is on its own. I'm on my own. Uh, how can we adapt our thinking to be more um, impactful around these issues as individuals? The Rogers innovation curve was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Tipping Point. So people are familiar with it, uh, but it's not being used as a as a tool. Uh, in this world there, or in this country, about two and a half percent of the population have the ability to think innovatively and creatively to put together lots of uh, disparate information into a system's whole, uh, and then to plot a pathway to uh, achieving a certain goal or a result based on that knowledge. Uh, what I've seen in, in um, my experience is that innovative ideas take a long time to uh, make their way into a general population. And so what I, when, when I was uh, somewhat teasingly saying it's, I'm happy to talk to another early adopter, which you are, if not an innovator, um, it's because I realized that the pathway to impacting the majority of people in this country uh, is through identifying early adopters, making them aware of their orbit of influence. So Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his study of cognitive biases. Your brain behaves in predictable patterns. And one of the predictable patterns, for example, is the affinity bias. Um, you know, when I met you, uh, you were a friend, of, a friend of mine. He liked you. I liked you immediately. That's an affinity bias. And then to hear the kinds of things that you were involved in took me to other biases uh, that... Uh, form a bond, uh, and then I'll go out and I will be sharing information with my circle of friends. And as we do that, I'll, I'll capture some people who are also early adopters and will work towards this early majority. We're doing that in climate change. The problem with climate change is that we have huge economic interests on the back end and what Professor Rogers referred to the back end as laggards. Uh, people who have no incentive to change because they're benefiting tremendously from the existing circumstances. So uh, with climate change, I'm beginning to see a little bit of the shift. Uh, I shared with you yesterday two resolutions that were recently passed by the Alaska Federation of Natives and the National Congress of American Indians. Uh, the early adopters in the American Indian Alaska Native community uh, are now out there trying to influence the early adopters to begin to take a, a path of action to address climate change. Uh, people who uh, are working on the uh, Paris Accord initially and got it put together were the innovators. Uh, when they uh, got enough people to agree to it, those were the early, the, uh, early adopters. And now we're looking, and I think we're into the early majority 
I don't know that we can wait to get to um, a substantial majority, but at least that we're, we're at the point right now where we can begin to impact some of the most uh, egregious symptoms of the issue that the systemic issue of climate change that's facing us. Uh, and I think that in order to change it effectively, we also be having we are also having to look at the mental health, the behavioral health of the people that are being severely impacted, uh, and then their physical health. As I mentioned, if you're moving a community uh, 18, 19, 20 miles away, which is what they're proposing for Kivalina, what does that do to their access to bowhead whales? What does that do their, to their access to a walrus? You are disrupting the community, and that's an additional adult-acquired trauma that, you know, if we just focus on the physical move, then we're missing a whole lot of what could impact that community for decades, if not centuries to come. Alaska Native people have had to adjust for centuries to changing circumstances and conditions. Uh, so back in the 1600s, as I told you yesterday, uh, the people who live, uh, who now live in, in the native village of Huna in southeast Alaska were actually living in Glacier Bay uh, during an advance of glaciers. And it was a rapid advance. Uh, the, the local people through the uh, oral history uh, said that the glaciers were moving as fast as a dog runs. So they left the Glacier Bay area relocated. Now those glaciers are receding as a part of the climate change that is occurring. But... Um, What's going to happen is, is that they won't be able to return to their traditional homelands because Glacier Bay is now a, a, a wilderness area. It's uh, not accessible uh, to people. In fact, uh, cruise ships are limited to, I think, one hour in the bay itself. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the issues faced by Alaska Natives is that uh, because Alaska was such a pristine state uh, back in the 1970s and 80s, a lot of it was set aside for uh, federal purposes. It just uh, gives me another argument for if the feds have so much land here and are locking up so many resources, uh, is it not a part of their obligation to return some of that resource value to Alaska Native communities that suffer as a, uh, because of their inability to develop those resources. Well, I guess you could apply the same argument to uh, oil companies. On Absolutely. The, on the private side, you take all the profits and what do you leave behind? What do you create in the place that's giving you the largesse? Uh, typically, lots of problems. Uh, one of the problems that the military left behind after World War II uh, is that they had a lot of uh, chemicals, a lot of uh, products that were left behind and buried. So I know in a lot of communities uh, today, they look at many of these uh, substances uh, uh, having laid in the community for decades and decades and decades as having a deleterious health effect on the community, perhaps another reason for some of the higher rates of cancer in some uh, native communities. So, you know, we, we live in a collective culture and a collective society, but so many of us, not me included, but so many believe that we should be left to our own devices and what we earn is ours. Uh, when in fact, uh, as a system, every one of us is interconnected to a degree that most of us don't understand. Well, I thank you for that wonderful explanation. It seems like that's a really good ending line. 
you know, that um, I was trying to get to the empathy question and the, we're, we could be there too, even when we live in New York or Pasadena or someplace, we could very well be living in a place like Kivalina and we'd be the same people, you know, no matter the color of our skin or our food supply, you know. Um, and uh, that's, always, that's always struck me and I wanted, to, I wanted to get to that and I wanted to get to the, the responsibilities of the um, extractive industries and the, the feds, you know, for their um, the benefits that the overall society has received and things like that. Felix Cohen was one of the greatest uh, Indian law scholars uh, of all time. He was not American Indian himself, but uh, I think he was a solicitor for Department of Interior and he wrote the um, first handbook of American Indian law, but uh, as a young uh, a college student, uh, I remember a statement that he made. Uh, he talked about how we treat the American Indian uh, as being analogous to the canary in a mine. Uh, canaries were kept in mines to make sure that uh, methane or other gases didn't impact the miners, and if the canary died, you were in serious trouble. Um, American Indians were almost terminated uh, during the 1950s, uh, a lot of uh, tribes lost their federal recognition and existence, lost their reservations, uh, uh, and have been staging a comeback. Uh, and understanding that how we treat the most unfortunate among us, uh, American Indians having been dispossessed, having high rates of historical trauma, uh, not being immune from the diseases that Europeans uh, were immune to when they came over, so uh, a huge die-off, uh, the historical traumas that occurred, really made American Indian and Alaska Native populations susceptible. Uh, and the resources have not really come in to address all of those issues. Uh, and you are right, uh, what happened as American Indians were dispossessed is that huge stores of natural resources were unleashed uh, and propelled the United States to economic prominence. And so uh, I like Cohen's, uh, Cohen's analogy. I like what he was talking about American Indians, Alaska Natives being the canary in the coal mine is that uh, if the health of American Indians improves uh, and if we're usually the last to be dealt with, then you can probably be assured that the health of almost everyone else in the country is improving as well. So that's the last thought I'd like to leave with you, Robert. Uh, what happened as American Indians were dispossessed is that huge stores of natural resources were unleashed uh, and propelled the United States to economic prominence. This is Robin Carneen of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for sitting by our campfire at Nature's Touch. Please join Robert Lindahl next time as he continues to share important conversations about climate change 
and other environmental issues. If you'd like to contact Robert, please email him at robert at studio-rla.com. Be kind to Mother Earth. It's the only one we have. Thank you for being with us on Nature's Touch. Climate Change is here. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and on climatechangeshere.com. Thank you, Robin Carneen, and to the Greenbelt Society, Hunter College, and Pratt Institute. And you can reach me, Robert, at studio-rla.com.